Well, I'm glad you're here this evening, and this is technically our last class scheduled, but since we've missed a couple of classes, um, I'm willing to come back the week after Thanksgiving, not next Thursday, obviously, but the following Thursday, and we could talk about Bible translations, like how we got our Bibles, what's the difference between translation methods is there a big difference between the niv and the new american standard of the esv and what are some of those i think that's kind of interesting i'd kind of like to cap this off with that because we've done some really i think pretty serious study and all of this but again it's to equip us it's to equip you at least to be aware and then again to have some handles to get started on some of these things so way back when we started our class we talked about biblical criticism well how could you trust the bible you have we only have copies of copies of copies of copies. You know, we don't have the original. So how do you know that that's the word of God? Well, I think we did a good job with that. And I told you I used a lot of um, uh, Dan Wallace. His information, his material on that, really, really helpful to give us great confidence that we can trust Scripture. We talked about all about the manuscripts. Again, Andy said you could go back, and these are all. Most of these are on online, and we have the outlines as well. And then the last several weeks, we've been talking about the biblical canon. You know, why do we have the books that we have, especially in the New Testament? We're, we're kind of keeping this for the most part to the New Testament because if we did the old, it would just be a lot longer. It would be here for maybe two years, trying to, not you know, at least a year, trying to get through all of it. But we're talking about the New, Test- New Testament canon and how do we get these books. So we've, we've been talking all about that in the different ways, you know, Roman Catholics did it with the church and how they received it, the different models of receiving the books. And then we came to, last week we started talking about what's called the self-authenticating model. And that is the way that we got the books of the New Testament. It's not just willy-nilly. There's a process to it. There's checks and balances to it for sure. But it's basically received. This is what the early church had. These were the writings. They were recognized that they were from the apostles. They had certain marks, and we've been talking about those. And um, obviously the the Holy Spirit leading and guiding in that way, which is so important. So let me pray, and then we'll uh, finish up with our self-authenticating model. Father in heaven, we do thank you and praise you so much. I do thank you for this class, Lord, Um, not just for the information. Um, Some of us are being reminded of how we can trust the Bible, that it is the word of God. Ultimately, Lord, we know it's your word. You bring conviction in our heart. You show us. You give us evidence and proof and and understanding through your Holy Spirit. And yet we're living in a world right now, Lord, where there is so much of of an attack, uh, so much skepticism within the church, but especially outside the church, regarding the reliability of Scripture how we can know it, Scripture, how we can um, how we can know why we have particular books in Scripture, Lord, and we're being challenged in that way. So it's good for us to have an answer for the hope that lies within us. And I pray through this class you're equipping us in that way, at least to get started in conversations, at least not to be overly surprised when you hear these very sophisticated arguments against uh, your holy word. So please bless this evening, and we thank you for the time that we've had. In Jesus' name, amen. All right, so last week, I just want to uh, go through the, the outline very quickly because 
we don't have other we don't have extra outlines from last week. I'm so sorry. I wish we did to give a couple. Hi, Andy. I, and I I didn't have them in mind. I left my Bible at home. I mean, I'm a mess tonight. I'm a mess. Now I, I got my phone, and I'm gonna have you guys read. <laughs> so, pretty much as we'll do. But we talked about listen. How do we know that these are the books that belong in the New Testament? It's not again, like I said earlier, it doesn't fall from the sky. It's not a dude that walked out of the woods and said, you know, these angels came to me and gave me these books. You know, it's not just one man in this way, but it's what the church had from the earliest days of, of the church. And they were reading along with the Old Testament were to establish scripture, establish canon. But then even as the apostles or the associates of apostles were writing those letters, they were being taken as authoritative. And they bore some marks. And that's what we're really interested in. So you need to know this. Like, what are some of these things? What are the components as, as, as to know what, what that we can trust these books? And so last week we talked about the first one, and it was providential exposure. Now it's just the idea that the church cannot authenticate books that it doesn't have. So God providentially, and see, a lot of this comes down to faith, right? But it's faith with good reason. You know, it's not just a blind faith, like, oh, we just trust we could. We have good reasons to believe, just like with anything, even with the Trinity. It's there in Scripture, but it still takes faith because there's still a mystery to it. We don't quite, that's what I love about the faith. We always have to rely on the Lord. We're not going to have the full answer all the time. Sometimes that's frustrating, but other times it keeps us humble and reliant on the Lord. It's the same here when it comes to canon. Providential exposure. The Lord providentially assures that the books we have are the books he wanted us to have. They're not lost or forgotten because lots of people talk about, oh, what about the lost book? What about the lost gospels? We have all kinds of different gospels from around that time. And that's true that they found. Why not the gospel of Thomas? Why isn't that included in there? There's good reasons for that. But the books we do have, um, they're, they're there because of providential exposure. We spent time talking about that last week. Also, we talked about the divine qualities, and that's what we're going to focus in on tonight especially. That's a big deal. Um, these are the, the major qualities that, that come forth in Scripture. We're going to consider a few of them. There are more, but just really the top three. And then, of course, number three was the rule of the Holy Spirit. It is the Holy Spirit, the internal testimony of the Spirit. He needs to reveal the divine qualities. He enables us to see what's already there. That's what's so amazing. Just like when you're a Christian. Before you're a Christian, you probably read the Bible. But, but now it's like, okay, we understand. He opens our eyes. We could see even these divine qualities in the scriptures, even as Christians, we know it's different. It's not just a burning in our bosom. It's very real. There's real um, actual change in our lives and so forth. So um, the Holy Spirit, he doesn't say, oh, well, I've discovered this or, or whisper in our ear. This one's, this one's a real one. This one's a real one. No, he enables us to see what's already there, what's already God ordained what the Lord has for us as scripture. So he overcomes the effects of sin, in other words. Um, the book is canonical because the objective divine qualities that it contains. And then we talked about corporate reception. There is a place for the church and the church fathers, the early church. They received these letters. They copied these letters. They sent these letters. We talked in the past about how Peter acknowledged that Paul, what Paul was writing was scripture. In other places, we know what the other apostles were writing was scripture. All scripture is God-breathed. And so these things are, 
when we put all these things together, that's really helpful in distinguishing. And it gives us some confidence that, okay, yes, this is the word of God. It's proving itself to be. Um, then we talked about the, the um, apostolic origin. God delivered his message in a distinct block of time, and it's really important. Uh, a lot of these books, like 22 out of the 27 Old, uh, New Testament books, were received early on, you know, by the, the early 200s. That's, that's, in literary terms, that's a, that's a short period of time. Even earlier than that, these books were considered scripture. There were a few that they kind of wrestled with, but they got them in um, eventually. They, they met the criteria. But it was um, a block of time. Through the distinct office, the apostolic office, the apostles that wrote it, or associates of the apostles. We talked about that last week and what that what that looks like, what that means, and what it looks like. So it's not random and arbitrary. It's not just me writing a book, oh, this is scripture, you know, it's God gave me this word, I'm writing this down, and you know, that's and there's a lot to try to do that. So these this is like a filter. Like you know, this is you can't just come along and say, Well, I have a gospel here, and God inspired me to write this, so we're gonna treat it as authoritative. We can't do that. Um, obviously, the op- apostolic office has ceased. We talked about that, and um, you know they, they were the apostles of the foundation of the church. So you have providential exposure, divine qualities, corporate reception of the church, and apostolic origin. So these are these are things that um, components of this self-authenticating model. showing us it's the word of God. It's not the church saying, okay, this is the word of God because we say it's the word of God. We're just receiving the word of God. We see these marks in it. We see the power of scripture. So the biggest deal is the, um, the divine qualities of the New Testament of canon. And that's what I want to spend our time talking about tonight. I do want to start off by reading from the Westminster Confession of Faith because I think they do a great job talking about what I just kind of went over um, in the first chapter and the fifth paragraph or number five. It says that we may be moved and induced by the testimony of the church to a high and reverent esteem of Holy Scripture. That's the corporate reception. The heavenliness of the matter. This is some of the qualities of Scripture. The efficacy of the doctrine, the majesty of the style, the consent of all the parts, the scope of the whole, which is to give all glory to God. The full discovery it makes of the only way of man's salvation and the many other incomparable excellencies and the entire perfection thereof are arguments whereby it doth abundantly evidence itself to be the word of God. It shows us it's a word of God. Yet, and here's the key, yet notwithstanding our full persuasion and assurance of the infallible truth and divine authority thereof is from the inward work of the Holy Spirit bearing witness by and with the word in our hearts. So it's the Holy Spirit that ultimately we really rely upon. But that's a beautiful summation of what we're talking about here tonight. So how can we know? Um, these New Testament books belong in the canon. They have these certain traits, certain qualities, and these divine qualities of the New Testament canon. We'll just talk about three tonight. There are more. But the first one we want to talk about, and it's on your outline, is the holiness, beauty, and excellency. And borrowing language from the Westminster Confession of Faith, also the larger catechism, that idea, it's not simply that, oh, the Bible's so beautiful rhetorically, you know, it's poetic, it has all these different genres, it's a literary, you know, masterpiece. It is that, but when the divines are writing this, they they were intending 
to, to make sure that we know that it speaks, the, the books, every book in the New Testament, each one of them has this quality, that it speaks to the beauty of Jesus Christ displayed throughout, throughout that book, but also in the rest of Scripture as well. So, in other words, the Scripture, all of it, we're including the Old Testament now, is Christocentric or Christ-centered. That's a big deal. The New Testament kind of fulfills and finishes the story of the Old. You know, even the Old Testament ends um, with the gap, like, you know, the 400 years aside. It's not quite complete. You know, it's not over yet. But even in the Hebrew version of the Old Testament, I think it's Chronicles, which ends with the genealogy. Still, it's not over yet. Something, you know, there needs to be that fulfillment. So Matthew starts with a, with his um, genealogy of Christ. So, so that goes together. Or if you want to do it with Malachi, that 400 years of silence, it's not over. You get that sense that there's more to come. They're looking forward to something else. And that's where the New Testament comes in. So it's Christ-centered, and that's he's the one that goes through it. So I do want us to read Scripture tonight to kind of for you to understand this, to get this through. Um, so Luke chapter 24. <coughs> Luke 24, and I do want to read a nice chunk of it. Um, This is Jesus on the road to Emmaus, beginning in uh, verse 13, Luke 24, 13, and I'll read this. That very day, two of them... We're going to a village named Emmaus, about seven miles from Jerusalem. And they were talking with each other about all the things that had happened. While they were talking and discussing together, Jesus himself drew near and went with them. But their eyes were kept from recognizing him. And he said to them, what is the conversation that you're holding with each other as you walk? And they stood still looking sad. Then one of them, then Cleopas, answered him, are you the only visitor to Jerusalem who does not know the things that have happened here, that happened there in these days? And he said to them, what things? And they said to him concerning Jesus of Nazareth, a man who was a prophet, mighty in deed and word before God and all the people. And how our chief priests and rulers delivered him to be condemned to death, delivered him up to be condemned to death and crucified him. But we had hoped that he was the one to redeem Israel. Yes, and besides all this, it is now the third day since these things happened. Moreover, some women of our company amazed us. They were at the tomb early in the morning, and when they did not find his body, they came back saying they had even seen the vision of angels who said that he was alive. Some of those who were with us went to the tomb and found it just as the woman had said. But him they did not see. And he said to them, O foolish ones, and slow of heart, to believe all that the prophets have spoken. Was it not necessary that the Christ should suffer these things and enter into his his glory? And then look at verse 27. And beginning with Moses and all the prophets, he interpreted to them all the scriptures, the things concerning himself. So that's a big, big deal. And then later on, if you go to verse 44, he's appearing before his disciples And he said to them, these are my words that I spoke with you while I was still with you, that everything written about me 
in the law of Moses, that's the one part of the Old Testament, the law, the prophets and the Psalms, or the writings, must be fulfilled. Then he opened their minds to understand the scriptures. And there's there's that work of opening it up. So you see, all the scripture, that's why we say it's Christocentric, Christ-centered. It's about Christ. That's the story of the Bible. And, and that's what's included in the New Testament books. They, they recognize that it is about Jesus Christ. So whether we're reading in 1 Corinthians or Romans, obviously, Colossians, Revelation, it's Christ-centered. It's about Jesus Christ. Um, in John, uh, the Gospel of John, again, just uh, John chapter 5 and verses 45 and 46. He's having it out with uh, the, the Pharisees and they're arguing he forgave sins. Who is this man to be able to forgive sins? So on and so forth. Um, and then in uh, verses 45 and... Wait, is that John? Mind John. That's Luke 5. John 5. Okay. Um, 45 and 46. <clears throat> As he's arguing with them, he says to them, Do not think that I will accuse you to the Father. There is one who accuses you. I'm sorry. There is one who accuses you, Moses, on whom you have set your hope. For if you believed Moses, you would have believed me. Why? Because he wrote of me. But if you do not believe his writings, how will you believe my words? So he's going back to the Pentateuch, saying Moses wrote about me. So it's all about, it's Christ-centered in that way. So that plays out. And, and part of the, 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 that divine quality, as we said in Scripture, it's, it's Christ-centered. So um, we could see it in millions of ways. We could spend a whole semester just talking about this very thing, talking about these qualities. And it would be a good thing to do sometime, but we can't do that. We just don't have the capacity or the time. Uh, but it is fascinating. But, so just for instance, the seed of the woman, where the Savior is going to come from. So Genesis, somebody wants to turn, please, to Genesis 3.15. And then William, would you go to Luke Chapter 1, verses 26 through 35, if you want. That's a long section to read. <laughs> Somebody else. <laughs> I know that's long. And then um, Galatians 4, 4. Laney, will you do Galatians 4, 4? Is that too long, Will? Three, do you want me to read that? Okay. Um, so Genesis 3.15. Kevin, do you have that? Did I ask you? What's that? Genesis 3.15. Uh, 3.15, yeah. I will put enmity between you and the woman and between your offspring and her offspring. He shall bruise your head and you shall bruise his heel. Okay, so that's beautiful. That is what's called the Proto-Evangelion. That's kind of the first promise or <coughs> preaching of the gospel itself. The seed of the woman. Now you know it's patriarchal throughout scripture. Usually it's the man. It's the genealogy beginning with the man for the most part. It's, it's that. But here it's the seed of the woman. There's a reason for that because he would be born of a woman. He doesn't have an earthly father, right? He's conceived by the power of the Holy Spirit in the womb of the Virgin Mary. So this is the seed of the woman. And here's that promise as he's, as he's bringing judgment on Satan. So here's what's going to happen. You know, the seed of the woman is going to crush your head. You're going to bruise his heel, which points to the cross. But that whole idea runs through the Old Testament. We, that's the development of, of the story of the gospel of Christ. So that promise. And there's always been two lines, the seed of the woman and the seed of the serpent. Um, 
culminating in Christ. But then Luke chapter 1, verses 26 to 35. In the sixth month, the angel Gabriel was sent from God to a city of Galilee named Nazareth to a virgin betrothed to a man whose name was Joseph of the house of David. And the virgin's name was Mary. And he came to her and said, Greetings, O favored one, the Lord is with you. But she was greatly troubled at the saying and tried to discern what sort of greeting this might be. And the angel said to her, Do not be afraid, Mary, for you have found favor with God. And behold, you will conceive in your womb and bear a son, and you shall call his name Jesus. He will be great and will be called the Son of the Most High, and the Lord God will give to him the throne of his father David, and he will reign over the house of Jacob forever, and of his kingdom there will be no end. And Mary said to the angel, How will this be, since I am a virgin? And the angel answered her, The Holy Spirit will come upon you, and the power of the Most High will overshadow you. Therefore the child will be born and will be called Holy, the Son of God. Okay, beautiful. And you see, that's the seed of the woman. That goes right back to Genesis 3. But here in the Gospel, it, it contains that. That's one of those divine qualities. It's Christ-centered. It's all about Jesus. And here's the, here's the, the woman that's going to bear that son. And then Galatians 4.4, 4, there's the promise. But when the fullness of time had come, God sent forth his son, born of woman, born under the law. I'm sorry, then read the next verse too. To redeem those who are under the law so that we might receive adoption as sons. Yeah, that's a big deal. He came to redeem us. So, but you see, the seed of the woman, born of a woman, born under the law. So you have those divine qualities in the Gospels. So reading that, it goes all the way back to, from, from the Old Testament. It's grounded in the Old Testament. But we see Christ-centeredness. It's about Jesus. That's one of the divine qualities. So when they're reading this, it's it's showing forth, okay, here's a story. It's, it's, it's coming together. We see this very plainly. Uh, we could talk about the book of Hebrews all night long. You know, if there's one word for Hebrews, when you compare it to the Old Testament. So, so there were, especially the Jews that were professing Christ or converted to Christ, things were getting really rough for them. Things were getting really tough for them. Being... Christians in that in that place and persecution was coming upon them. So what were some of them thinking? What were some of those what did they what were some of them wanting to do? What occasioned the, the writing of, of the book of Hebrews? Do you remember? They kind of wanted to they wanted to go back. They wanted to go back. And, and so the writer of the Hebrews saying, What are you going to go back to? Why are you going to go back there? And again, this is Christocentric. The book of Hebrews it's all about, like if you could choose one word, there's definitely a couple words you can use, but better. You know, it's better than, something better is here. That was that was a shadow, that looked forward, but now we have the fullness, we have the real thing. So here's a, there's, a, there's a better, Jesus is better than all the prophets, right? He's the, he is the prophet. Jesus is better than the priesthood. He is the one. The priesthood looked forward to Christ. So you see, Christ-centered, Christocentric. The sacrifices. They did it every single day. No, there's one sacrifice. One time. The better sacrifice. The sacrifice. It goes back. So you have that fullness of what the Old Testament anticipated in Jesus Christ. Fulfilled by Christ. So that's characteristic of the books of the New Testament. And then they also teach us how to live as those who believe in Jesus Christ. You know, we, we have instruction in that way. So the, they bear the mark. It's Jesus through and through. That's why the genealogies, especially in the two Gospels, they go all the way back. One to David, one, or one to Abraham, one to Adam. All the way back to Adam. 
showing that's these are real people. Like if we do our genealogy, wow, that's my great 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 grandma. You know, that's wow, that's she lived back then. And, but that's that's showing that this it's history, but it's centered on Christ. It's centered on Jesus Christ. That's why most of the genealogies are very important in that way because they tie together that line leading to Christ. So even in the Old Testament to the New. Um, I gave you the second outline. We're not going to take a lot of time to do it. This would be a whole night. This would be a beautiful, beautiful study to do. And this is this is the idea. It's a divine quality. I'm not saying that the initial readers of Scripture, early church, kind of had all of this. But it's definitely this idea of, especially Matthew, who's he writing to? He's writing to mainly Jews. Yeah, that, that was his main audience. Luke was more Gentile. So they, they had different audiences. That's why we have different um, <sighs> different views of, of the same accounts in life of Christ, but appealing to that particular audience. That's why in Matthew said, this was done to be fulfilled. This fulfilled what the prophet said, blah, 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 all the way through almost. So that's a big, big deal. But what's so beautiful about this, and you see Christ-centeredness, this is... In the life of Christ. And this will take at least one class to do. I'm not going to do it tonight. But in the life of Jesus, you see the whole nation of Israel. It's called recapitulation. In Christ's life, you can see that Jesus is the true Savior. He is, in a sense, the true Israel. I know the church is. I'm not going to get into that necessarily. But this is a picture of Christ. So, um, you know, it goes back to the book of Genesis. In Matthew 1, Genesis 2, 4, the son of Abraham with Joseph the dreamer. The dream came. The children are killed. We know that that happened with Herod who kills the children. The deliverer rescue. He flies to Egypt. Go to Egypt. Then he calls his son out of Egypt. All these things. Uh, temptation in the wilderness kind of shows what Israel was in the wilderness. Um, Teaching delivered from a mountain. The law came from the mountain. Christ was on the Sermon on the Mount. All these things point to Christ, who is the greater Israel in that way. Um, the, the, the ten miracle versus the ten plagues. Opposition from the Jewish leaders that people turned away. Sheep without a shepherd. All these things. I just want you to have it in, in your own time. Look up the scriptures. And it's so cool because Jesus' own life kind of, in a way fulfills the shadows of the life of the whole nation of Israel because he is the one. He is the savior of his people and it, and it shows that. So there's a, a lot here. This would be a really cool sermon to, or a study to do one night, but I just wanted you to have this because it shows that the New Testament is Christ-centered. This is a divine quality. So in these readers, it's, a, it's about Jesus. It's cohesive. Very cohesive when you read it. If you read other religious writings, I don't care if it's the Book of Mormon. I don't care if it's the Quran. I don't care if it's um, some of the Hindu books. They're, they're jagged and scattered and they don't, it doesn't flow. There's not like a, an overall story line that, that goes through. It's disjointed in many, many ways. Mischaracter, mixed characterizations, you know. The Muslims got things wrong about Jesus and, and the life of Christ and so forth. But when you read these books, there is, and this is the Holy Spirit working, cohesive, coherent, consistent. In the Gospels, in the letters, they speak to the centrality of the person and work of Jesus Christ. That he fills out the Old Testament, that he is the Savior. These books 
focus on the redemptive work of Christ. So can you think of a couple of New Testament letters, especially the first half of those letters will focus on the personal work of Christ. Then the second half of those letters focus on how we are to live as Christians. You know, we have that outworking. So even in the New Testament books, if you're reading early on, they talk about what are a couple examples. Do you guys not have any idea? Talk about Christ, who he is, like Ephesians, Colossians, you know, um, then really speak to who Christ is, the person and work of Christ, and then what it looks like to be a Christian. And it goes on to talk about that. So really, really Christ-centered. And that's amazing in these in these books, in these letters. So you, you have that. Now the big deal comes in. Okay, okay, that's great. That's wonderful. But here's where this really comes in for us. Because people are going to say to you, well, what about this one? What about the Gospel of Thomas? You know how many other Gospels they found around this time, later than, than, than the original four, the canonical Gospels? But... When they're, when they're compared with their what are called apocryphal Gospels or Gospels, later writings that they found, none of these exhibit any of these qualities. So when you read our Gospels, you see that it's very much Christ-centered. It's a story of Christ, his person and work, and there's a cohesiveness, coherent. They're writing to different audiences, but they're saying the same thing ostensibly in their, in their teachings. Very unified in that way. So you have early other Gospels that were found that people will contend and say, okay, Mr. Christian, why isn't the Gospel of Thomas? That's a big one. Uh, How about the Gospel of Judas? The Gospel of Mary? The Gospel of Philip? The Gospel of Truth? The Gospel of the Twelve Apostles? Now, that's a big name. If you want to be known, you get a big name like that. This is the the Gospel of the Twelve Apostles. Wow. The Infancy Gospel of Thomas, which is different than the Gospel of Thomas. It talks about about Christ. So, so people might say to you, what about these other things? How could, because there's not, they're not coherent. They're not, they don't focus on Christ. There's different things about these apocryphal Gospels that's, that are set apart from canonical Gospels. So four things. I don't know if I have them on your outline. Yeah, I do. Um, when compared, when they get these other Gospels and they compare them to the canonical Gospels, Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John, there are certain things that say, wait a minute, it doesn't fit. You know, this doesn't go. This is really different. There's, you know, it's strange. These are four things that you could say, you could point out that are very true. Number one, the four Gospels that we have are the earliest Gospels that we have. So that answers the when question. And so when did we have these Gospels? Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John. We had them early. Anywhere from the 50s, early to mid-50s, to... The 90s, okay, before the year 100. That's when these Gospels were produced. The other Gospels, the ones that I just mentioned and others, are at least the second century, like 120 and, and after that kind of. So, so they're definitely later by date. So these are the four that are the closest that we have. And that's important because you still had eyewitnesses to the Gospels, like some of the, the church fathers. Um, has anybody ever heard of Polycarp? <laughs> that name? I know Jonathan, you know this stuff. <laughs> Polycarp, who was, who was uh, a disciple of John, uh, the Apostle John. And so he wrote down, he gave eyewitness testimony. Yes, John wrote this. So that, it might not sound like much to us here in this room, but in the literary world, this is huge. This is a big deal. Just like we talked about all the copies that we have of the New Testament, all the manuscripts that we have, that's huge. Remember how we said, you know, 
first century, we might have three manuscripts from Josephus and dated about a thousand years after he would have written them. That's not like that with the New Testament. We have so many copies very close to when they were written. So that's a, that. The, in that world, remember, this is like these are specific theological sciences. So we're just in that world. That's a big, big deal. Like it's you could say with in a, with assurance that yes, these are authentic. That's what they even the critics would have to say that. So we have the earliest. Second, the canonical gospels have credible connection to the apostles. Again, who? You know, we again we talked about Polycarp, there are other early church fathers, other connections to the apostles who wrote this, who wrote the who wrote the gospels, or associates of the apostles like Luke, who was um, close with Paul, so on and so forth. We talked about that last week. Number three, and this is a big one. This is how we can know. The four gospels. Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John, canonical Gospels, lack the embellishment of later Gospels. And that's a big, big deal. That's a big tell. Also, the Apocryphal Gospels, which are many and they're more and more popular, there's little or no continuity with the Old Testament or New Testament writings. Right? There's little continuity. There, there are some strange books. So, so the Gospel accounts, for instance, our Gospel accounts of the Resurrection, are consistent. You know, the women go there, they just kind of say, oh, the, the tomb is empty. You know, The angels appear to them, let them know what's going on, they go back and tell. That's, that's what you would expect. The Gospel of Peter, the so-called Gospel of Peter, brings us inside the tomb at the resurrection of Christ. And when it shows, or t- teaches and tells, that when Jesus was raised and comes out of the tomb, he's a giant. Not just a giant, giant, like a giant, 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 and his head goes like to the to the almost the, the top of the clouds, like the bottom of the clouds, not the top, like you know, like Jack and the Beanstalk giant. That, and it's just fantastic. But not only that, if you read, if you read in Gospel of Peter, the cross also comes out of the tomb, floating out of the tomb, big cross, and then the cross begins to speak. So that's you know. So people say you don't have the gospel. Well, this is why it doesn't it doesn't fit the grid. It doesn't. It's not there. It's later. It comes later, and it's there's these embellishments that don't comport and they don't say much. So it's not as hard as you might think. You know. So why don't we have that? When you start comparing and reading, you could say you put it through this grid: the time, the time span, the apostolic connection, the things that we talked about even last week. You can see that. So that's just one example in that way. The Gospel of Thomas doesn't really comport with, with the rest of the New Testament. It just it doesn't fit, you know? And stories are embellished and it's it's kind of scattered. I haven't read it in a long time. Um, the infancy gospel of Thomas. So nobody we want to know what Jesus was like when he was a little boy. We might have in Luke. He was, what, 12 at the, at the temple, remember? And they, they came back to get him. And he said, I'm, I'm here in my father's house. Um, okay, that's about all that we have. And he grew in stature. We, we know that. Um, but the gospel of, the infancy gospel of Thomas gives you an inside look onto baby Jesus. And see, this baby Jesus, and this is what skeptics will say, that the critics, your people that don't love Christ, will say, how come you don't have that book in there? That's a gospel. It's, you know, again, it's later. And then it embellishes. It's, it's, it talks about this baby Jesus 
this young who's a terror. He's he's a terror. You know, there's one kid that makes fun of him, and he kills him. But then he raises him up because the people got mad, and so Jesus brings him to life again. I'm serious. This is, but this is what they'll say because they want to get us off. But when you sit back and you think about it, you put it through the grid. You say, wait a minute, that's a lot later. There's no apostolic connection, and there's these embellishments here. It doesn't comport. You know, this is a who Christ is. You know, and so um, so many of those. Apocryphal gospels are like that. But people are going to say, how can you Christians even know? Well, this is how we can know. You know, again, it's a testimony of the Holy Spirit, ultimately. But these are good ways to recognize it. So, um, and then the fourth thing, the four gospels were recognized as authoritative from a very early date. Like I said earlier, early church fathers, Irenaeus, Clement of Rome, um, they recognized the gospels. They were passing the gospels around in early, early writings and they were bringing them to churches. When it comes to these apocryphal gospels, they're not even mentioned uh, by the early church fathers. They're, there's, there's no, um, they're, they're kind of ignored or they're condemned, saying no, no, they, these aren't authentic. The, these are the ones the church are reading. These are the ones that we've gotten from the apostles. But there, there's, uh, they're condemning some of these. Later ones. Um, and then again, with manuscripts, with the Gospels, we have so many manuscripts, even with the church letters. That's copies of, of the copies, the, the manuscripts we talked about. When it comes to these apocryphal Gospels, it's very strange because we have a lot, especially with the Gospels, of course, tons of manuscripts. But with these false Gospels, there's like two or three manuscripts. So, so even, in, even in that way, there's not a lot there. So the books... Are Christ-centered. This is a divine quality. Um, they're consistent throughout in that way. They focus on the person and work of Jesus Christ. So that's how we could tell it. All the books in the New Testament have that quality. It's about Jesus. If you read your Bible and you read those books, who's at the center of all that? Christ, person, and work consistent throughout. So that's number one. Whew. Okay, number two. Wow. I hope we'll go a little faster on this one. The second divine quality is the power and the efficacy. Efficacy means the uh, ability to produce, that it's actually working, it's effective. So if you're a Roman Catholic, you believe that the waters of baptism are efficacious, that they actually change you, uh, they do a work in you, you're filled with, with, the, with the Spirit and with a divine um, grace in that way. Um, so efficacious, the power and efficacy of the Scripture. Every true Christian knows this. It's not subjective. It's not just a burning in our bosom. It's not just a, you know, wow, I think that this is... We know that the Word of God, Hebrews 4.12 tells us what? The Word of God is living, active, sharper than any two-edged sword. And it does. It is. It pierces us. It, it convicts us. It comforts us. It does all these things. It's alive. It's living. It's the living Word of God. And, and you, you, you can never master it. It masters you. You don't just read it. It reads you. When you're done reading the Scripture, it's more like, okay, I read this, I learned it, but it's telling me all about myself. Ah. That's that motorcycle mama. Okay. He does this every week. Uh, he's gone. <laughs> uh, so, so that's that's you can't plumb the depths of scripture. How many times have you read the Bible? I don't know. I can't tell you how many times I've I've read 
the Bible in these past you know, 30 years, whatever, how long I've been a Christian. Just kind of continually read it, right? Could you plumb the depths of it? Every time you read it, you learn something new, right? And, and it, it, it's amazing, it's, right? I preached through John way early on in my ministry, preached through John a couple years ago. Different, but the same. It's hard to explain. You know, it's, it's so we're just, we're continually being reminded and learning. We can't plumb the depths. We'll never plumb the depths. We'll never totally, there's always going to be more for us to learn and grow. However, at the same time, a small child can understand the essence of the gospel, right? So a, a young child can understand the gospel, yet it confounds the wisest theologian. That's the, that's the nature of scripture. Um, the changes, it changes us. It changes our, by God's grace, through the power of the Holy Spirit, as we understand, it changes our affections, right? Our eyes are open. It transforms our lives. It convicts us of our sins when we read it. Oh, I do see that I'm a sinner. I know that all have sinned and fall short of God, and I'm a chief among sinners. I'm convicted. Again, always remember, it's the Holy Spirit working in our hearts through the Word, but that's the power of the word. It confronts us um, with our sin. It comforts us in our salvation. It brings that message of salvation of Jesus Christ alone. That's why we go and preach him and teach him. This is the living, active word. All the books in the New Testament have this quality. They speak of Christ. They speak of the person and work of Christ. They're powerful. They're efficacious. They, they, um, they're, they're alive. They, they bring meaning to our lives. It's not just like you're reading a novel that, oh, wow, that makes me discover something. That fades. That goes away. This brings true and lasting meaning. It gives answers to, to, to the questions of life. It makes sense of things. That's why as Christians, we have a Christian worldview. We can't understand why people say, you know, well, oh, I just don't understand why these people keep killing. We're nice to them. We're trying to be as kind as we can. We don't know what the Bible teaches about human nature. We do. We can see it coming because that's what Scripture is. It's alive. It teaches us about God. It teaches us about human nature. It teaches us about sin, about salvation. It's, it's our worldview. It helps us make sense of things. And you can't really make sense apart from it, ultimately. That's a big, big deal. Even unbelievers, insofar as they make sense of things in their life, well, this is right, this is wrong, this is good, this is bad, they're borrowing, I don't have my Bible here, but they're borrowing right from our Bible, right? And that's why... When it comes down to it, if you're not a believer, eventually you will accept, for the most part, you, you, you most likely will accept what the world is bringing forth. Even if you don't quite agree with it at first, eventually, you, you know, how many people do you know, like even with the same sex, same sex marriage, same sex relationships, 20 years ago, was no way, no way, no way. That's not, it's not right, it's not right. It's not. But over the years now, well, if they love each other, and love is love. And, you know, I don't quite agree with it, but, you know, that's what, as a Christian, we could say, no, here's why. Because here's God's design. Here's God's purpose. Here's God's meaning. And this is why it's, it's sinful. And here's the answer to that. That's the living act of work. Every single book in the New Testament contains this quality, that efficacy, that power. It changes us. It gives us wisdom. It gives us knowledge. It gives us understanding. It's not just a fountain of information. You know, it's just information. But individuals are changed by it. Communities are changed by it. And when there's enough in the community that are changed by it, you see nations changed by it. It really does. Our nation is kind of an example of that. 
founded on biblical principles for a long, long time. Shaky foundations in different ways, but, but ostensibly, that's why we have a court system that we had. That's why we had just, and again, not perfect, but that's why we had the three branches of government. Why? Because they knew that man's sinful. You can't have a king or a ruler, right? They're going to be, do it their way. So now you have the checks and balances. Until that becomes corrupt, you know, all, all those kinds of things. That's the idea, though. And so that's, that is the power and efficacy. And you see that in the books of Scripture. It's not derivative. It's not derivative. It's original. Everything else is derivative. Every story, every movie you watch, every book you read has some kind of creation, fall, redemption, redeemer, you know, even if it's an anti, even if it's evil, even a story of good and evil, right and wrong. Where do you think that comes from, right? It comes from Scripture. That's how they can make sense of that. That's why we love the heroes and we can't stand the villains and we want to see them put away. That's, that's derivative. There's a right that's, that the, the Scripture is original. It never becomes old or outdated. It's, more, it's as relevant now today as it was when it was written in the 50s and through the 90s, right? Um, all of it. All of it. It's, it's, it's never antiquated. It's always true and it's always relevant. Laney and I were talking the other night. What were you saying to me, Laney, about Genesis, about the people that you're reading about? It's us. It's us. <laughs> you know, scheming, you know, not waiting on God. I'm not going to wait for God. I'm going to have this baby now. Go talk. And then, then she gets mad at her husband for doing that and, you know, kick her out. Laney's like, that's, we're just like that. That's, that's our sin nature. Right. Thousands of years ago. But that's, a, that's what it teaches us. That's what it shows us. Every book of the New Testament has this quality. Look at the problems in Corinth. The church of Corinth is one problem after another. Right? And here's, here's these, these qualities deal with that. So it's whether it's playing favorites, showing partiality. Oh, I like this dude. I like that dude. He's my man. Paul says, who are we? You know, he's correcting us. Uh, lawsuits among believers. Who are you? Why, why would we even do that? Like, you know, uh, immorality in the church. Um, sexuality, marriage, sex and marriage, divorce, Lord's up, all these things that it's as relevant today as it was back then. It never gets old. It's never antiquated. No, you can't say about one book in the New Testament, oh, we don't need that now. We don't need that today. We do. So you have that quality in Scripture, and it, and it comes through, and, it, and it, it shows, it's living, it's active. Word of God. That's another divine quality that we have in Scripture, a component. And then the last one, um, as we're moving on here in our time, is the one we'll stop with tonight is the unity and the harmony of Scripture. And this is beautiful. This is, I hope you can see behind all this that it's not possible for man just to do this, to write these books. It has to be from God because of the, of the way that it's put together, the way that it works, the way that it flows, the way that it talks about Jesus Christ. And the unity and harmony of Scripture, or the consistency, or the consent of all the parts, the coherence, it hangs together. No book is out of place. Now, when you read these apocryphal Gospels, books are out of place. It doesn't fit. What's this, a giant Jesus, or, you know, talking about these things going on? It has really nothing to do with, with, with the tenor of Scripture. But this does. So, um, like the Gospel of Peter, that, that kind of thing, it doesn't really fit. But what we have in Scripture is a unity from beginning to end, from Genesis to Revelation. 
We have unity in different places. Again, everything that I'm saying here tonight, everything that we're going through, all these qualities, could literally take weeks in a class. You know, Jonathan, if you're a seminary, that's spent a lot of time. It wasn't just you know in one little 45-hour-long school. These are just surface, just give you a little taste, but I hope it helps. So you have doctrinal unity from beginning to end. So we have creation. You don't have one part of scripture teaching, well, there's a different way of creation, um, you know, this kind of evolution in this way, that that's the way that that happened over there. And this teaches, you know, God, uh, no, no. We have doctrinal unity. God is creator. Now, there's differences among people. How does that look? What's that look like? So on and so forth. That's us wrestling with it. But scripture teaches that God created. It teaches us about God consistently, who God is, the attributes of God. It teaches us about man consistently. You don't have one book saying, no, 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 man is pretty good. And then this book saying over here, man is sinner. No, from beginning to end, we have the, the nature of, of, hum, of humans, that, that we're sinful, that we're fallen. No one does good, not even one. Even our righteous deeds are a filthy garment before the Lord. He knows our motives. He knows our hearts. That's, just, that's, just, that's the nature of scripture. So you don't find a book that says, no, 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 no. People are good. People are righteous. They're, you know, they're just in a bad environment. Right? No. Um, so, so all these things. Um, salvation. It doesn't teach another way of salvation. You know, some go, well, that's salvation of works over here. The Old Testament was works. New Testament's grace. That's not true. How were the people in the Old Testament saved? Were they justified by grace or by works? We're going to talk. We're going to look at James in a, in a couple of minutes. James and Paul, but. Right? Abraham believed God. That's New Testament. It was counted to him as righteousness. Salvation was always by grace. It wasn't the Jews would do what they had to do and God would say, okay, you're a good one because you're doing everything just right. No. It was about faith and looking forward and seeing Christ through what they were doing and believing on him. So when they brought that sacrifice, it wasn't just, hey, I'm doing my my job. I hope God looks at me and thinks I'm good. It became that in some ways. But it's coming forth knowing that I'm a sinner and this is what I deserve. And there's going to be one who's going to shed his blood for me. That's the promise of the, of the scripture. So it's coherent. It's a, it's a doctrinal unity. You don't have different teachings or mixed teachings in that way. Uh, salvation, one way of salvation in Christ Jesus. Uh, the, the our sanctification by the power of the Holy Spirit. Um, we don't become, there's no books that teach that we become sanctified in and of ourselves. We're working at our salvation, but it's the Holy Spirit who's working in us to know and do his will in us in that way. Uh, there's a consummation. We know that he's going to come back. Now, we have different ideas on how he's going to come, what that looks like, but every single Christian knows that Christ is going to return. That's taught from beginning to end, that God's going to come back to his people. So you have that doctrinal unity. You have harmony in Scripture. Again, it's like a beautiful puzzle, like a million-piece puzzle, and everything fits just perfectly within that. Again, you don't see this, and it would be really nice if, again, if we had more time, we could bring some of those other writings in. We could even look at the Quran. We could look at some of the, the um, uh, Apocryphal um, Gospels, and you would see for yourself, like, oh man, this doesn't... I mean, there's some things it might, but overall, it doesn't really fit in. Um, so you have that harmony of Scripture. It's the same story from beginning to end. It's the story of redemption. We say it's the unfolding of redemptive history. Everything is pointing to Christ. When the fullness of time came, God gave uh, 
Christ came forth of a woman born under the law to redeem us under the law. So it's all building to that crescendo of the person and work of Jesus Christ. That's what the Bible is all about. It's the same story unfolding more and more, blooming and teaching us about our sin, need for a Savior, and who that Savior is. So you have that cohesion, that coherent, it's coherent. And again, this is where the Holy Spirit comes in. All the books, see that you see this quality, whether it's in a minute way, in a miniature way, or as you're considering all the books of the canon, they all have this, this quality. The, the Bible was written over a long period of time. How many years? Do you guys remember? About 1,500 years that it was written in, in that range. How many different authors? Six. Four, 40s. In the 40s, 46. So somewhere in the 40s at least. So, so over 1,500 years, 40 different authors, three different continents. And you have this beautiful, cohesive book that makes sense, that teaches us in that way. So... Um, this is this is it shows itself. God reveals it to be from Him. Again, now people will always question us and they'll come back. But if you dig deep on these things, you'll be able to answer confidently and coherently. And then the people asking the questions are going to have to wrestle with this. Um, no contradictions, and that's a big deal. People say, "Wait a minute, your Bible's full of contradictions. Show me a true contradiction in Scripture." We could talk about that. We'll, and I do want to close our class, I'm going so fast tonight, by looking at an apparent contradiction that people will say, this is why this book doesn't belong in the Bible, or there's contradictions so that makes your Bible not true because God can't contradict himself, which is very true in that way. So that's a bold statement to make. And people say, oh, there's lots of contradictions. They're explained, they're, they're every single one. And, and I, I have a book at home I forget the name of it now, but it but it, it has all those apparent contradictions. But one that we have, even in the New Testament, since we're talking about the New Testament canon, is regarding justification. People will say, Do you know the two the two authors that I'm thinking of? The two books and the one idea. The one idea is about justification. And then we have James and Paul. And so people will say, Aha, that's there's a, that doesn't fit. You know, one guy saying this, that you're justified by your works. The other guy saying, no, you're justified by faith, no, by grace. So what, you can't have it both ways. How do, we get out? How do we get away with that? Even Martin Luther early on really, really struggled with it. Do you know which book, if you think about Martin Luther justification, which book do you think Luther would push away from himself? James or Romans? James. Jesus works. Ah, Luther was confounded at first. It's, a, you know, it's a, a, an epistle of straw, you know. Burn it. Get rid of it because it's it doesn't belong in the canon almost. But then he even he became he came to see the light. So what I want to do as we end this is talk about this because it is important because one of those divine qualities is a harmony, is a unity, is a consistency, is a coherence, and you don't have those contradictions. So people are going to come and say to you, well, what about this? How do you explain this? This guy's saying one thing. This other guy's saying something else. So, um, will somebody go to James chapter 2? It's a long section, 14 through 24. And I'll read, I'll start by reading in Romans. It's a little bit longer, but I wanted to kind of get the context and so forth. Romans 4, uh, beginning in 13. So, 
Does anybody want to volunteer for James 14 through 24? Somebody? Okay. But I'll read, I'll read Romans first. And then Leslie will read from James. So Romans 4, and this is talking about um, promise through faith, justification by faith. So, beginning of verse 13. For the promise to Abraham and his offspring that he would be heir of the world did not come through the law, but through the righteousness of faith. For if, it, for if it is the adherents of the law who are to be the heirs, faith is null and the promise is void. For the law brings wrath, but where there's no law, there's no transgression. That's why it depends on faith in order that the promise may rest on grace and be guaranteed of all and be guaranteed to all of his offspring, not only to the adherent of the law, but also to the one who shares the faith of Abraham who is the father of us all. As it's written, I have made you the father of many nations in the presence of God in whom he believed, who gives life to the dead and calls into existence the things that do not exist. In hope he believed against hope that he should become the father of many nations as he had been told. So shall your offspring be. He did not weaken in faith when he considered his own body, which was as good as dead since he was about 100 years old or when he considered the barrenness of Sarah's womb. No unbelief made him waver concerning the promise of God, but he grew strong in his faith, and he gave glory to God, fully convinced that God was able to do what he promised. That is why his faith was counted to him as righteousness. But the words it was counted to him were not written for his sake alone, but for ours also. It will be counted to us who believe in him, who raised Jesus from the dead, who delivered us up for our trans- trespasses and raised and was raised for our justification. So then he says we have peace through faith. He goes into chapter 5. So this is justification by faith. It's not by, by works. But trusting God, this is God's grace upon him. Now, James chapter 2, verses 14 through 24. What good is it, my brothers, if someone says he has faith but does not have works? Can that faith save him? If a brother or sister is poorly clothed and lacking in daily food, and one of you says to them, Go in peace, be warmed and filled, without giving them the things they needed for the body, what good is that? So also faith by itself, if it does not have works, is dead. But someone will say, You have faith and I have works. Show me your faith apart from your works, and I will show you my faith by my works. You believe that God is one. You do well. Even the demons believe and shudder. Do you want to be shown, you foolish person, that faith apart from works is useless? Was not Abraham our father justified by works when he offered up his son Isaac on the altar? You see that faith was active along with his works, and faith was completed by his works. And the scripture was fulfilled that says, Abraham believed God, and it was counted to him as righteousness. And he was called a friend of God. You see that a person is justified by works and not by faith alone. Okay, wow. <laughs> that's a big deal. So in Romans, you know, that's, hey, he's justified by faith, right? Alone, apart from works. Now James is saying, no, 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 no. You're justified. Now this causes a lot of consternation between Roman Catholics and Protestants as well, because Roman Catholics really hold strong onto James and so forth. But that's for another time. But 
our question is like, okay, well, how isn't this a contradiction? So how can the canon be if that if something like this is, is, is absolutely true? So how do we do this? How do we solve this? This is a big deal, and this is a real question that you might get. So we have to just step back and think about it, and, and you know, there is a way to answer this that really satisfies both in both sides. And here's what that is. And here's our answer. And this is why they both belong in the canon. This is why, this is why James is in a book of straw, right? Or you know, let's get rid of Romans because there's an apparent contradiction here. Because they're clearly using the same word. They're using the same person, you know, the same example from Abraham and so forth. But the first thing we have to try to ask ourselves is like, what question are they trying to answer? Like what problem were they addressing? What was Paul talking about when he's referring to Abraham? What was James talking about when he's referring to Abraham? Well, in James, in 2.14, um, as, as Leslie started, the idea was, what good is it, and here's, here's the question he's answering, saying, what good is it if a person says they have faith, if you profess to be uh, a Christian or a follower of Christ, if that faith isn't accompanied by very real, sincere, authentic works? And those are those works, Ephesians 2.10, that he's created beforehand for us to walk in. So, absolutely, we... we, we a true Christian will bear fruit and, and that will come out in our lives. Not always consistently and it's always jagged and so forth. But but a sincere Christian is going to bring forth those kinds of fruits if you profess to be a Christian. So that's why and James says, you know, what good is it if you say, hey, I hope things work out for you. <laughs> good luck. Uh, you know, but I'll see you later. I'm not going to help you. I'll just let you go. We can't do that. We have to help. That's that's who we are in Christ. Um. So that's what James is, 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 is asking. Paul's asking and answering, how can an unjust person, so in the context of, of Romans 3 and 4, he's talking about our sin and our justification. How can a sinful person stand before a holy and righteous just God and not be you know, condemned? How, how can we come into that presence? How can we be, be, uh, be justified in that way? Um, what do we have to do to, to, for God to accept us? To say, your sins are pardoned, your sins are forgiven, I don't count them against you, I cast them as far as the east is to the west, you are declared not guilty, the guilt is gone. How are we able to do that? Is it by our works? Is it by trying harder, doing better? That's, most people think that. They could be just, justified with God by, you know, I'm just going to do, do, do my best. I never killed anybody. I try to be a good person. I try to help people. And I hope God takes that into account. That's very typical. But in Romans, Paul's teaching, no, 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 no. We're not justified like that. We're justified by faith, by that grace that God gives, like that grace that God gave to Abraham. And he believed God, hope against hope. I know it doesn't seem, but I'm trusting in you. I'm trusting in you. That's a sign of, of regeneration, of justification, that we're trusting in the Lord even when we have no reason to trust in him. Or you know, it doesn't make sense to us in that way. That's one of the ways. So he is justified by faith apart from the works of the law. His faith was already coming through that he, that he believed in God. That shows the, the work of God in his heart. So James, and that's Paul. Does that make sense? We're justified by faith. That's how we're able to come into the presence of God. By faith alone and in Christ alone. James is saying what a person who professes to be Christ in Christ, who professes Christ, but shows no real evidence of being justified by that faith. A real evidence 
of being justified by faith comes through in how we live our lives. You're not that same person that you were. If you were, if you're still that same person without repentance, without you know, seeking to be changed, and I know the Christian life is hard and we, you know, it's the fits and starts and so on and so forth, that's sanctification, but, but that's desire to please the Lord and desire to do what's right. If you don't have that, you know, if you if you if you could be cold and callous and say, you know, no, then there's really is it? Are you really in? You better examine yourself. So James says, a person who professes Christ but shows no real evidence of being justified by faith, right? Justified by faith alone, and this is where Luther came to. We're justified by faith alone, but it's not a faith that is alone. It's a faith that's accompanied by our works, by the change that he makes in us, by the life that we live. It's a living faith. And so that's kind of the, the big difference between the two of these. Both James and Paul appeal to Abraham. Paul's talking about justification by faith. And do you remember in Genesis? Do you remember what chapter in Genesis that Abraham believed God by faith? What chapter that's in in Genesis that the promise is given to him and he believed? It's in Genesis 15. It's, I'm going to make you a father of many nations. I'm calling you. I'm going to lead you. That's Genesis 15. So that's first in order. And, and Abraham left everything and he believed him and he followed him. That's the grace of justification. Okay. When James is talking about Abraham... In what he did, what example did he use to show that Abraham was justified by faith? Do you remember the example from Genesis 22? Yes, yeah, that's right. He was gonna, he was ready to kill his heir, the son, knowing that God would raise him from the dead or provide another one. That's the faith that he had. See, it's really important to understand that what Paul's talking about Abraham and justification. He's going all the way back to Genesis 15, 16, 17. Okay, in those chapters, when James is talking about being justified by your works, right? Not just saying that you have faith, not faith alone, but that you're willing to put your money where your mouth is, right? You're willing to do what you're called to do. So that demonstration that he was ready to to sacrifice his own son, the heir, right? The heir to the promise, the one. The, he was willing to do that because he trusted God. That's the idea. That's the the works that justify, that show that you're justified. You understand? That's the distinction. That's the big deal between them. It's not that Paul's saying, or James is saying, look, you're justified, you know, by your by by believing, but you have to also do these things to be fully justified. No. If you're fully justified, it's going to show up in your life. Again, not always perfectly, even with Abraham, not perfectly, but it shows up in your life. A living faith will always be accompanied by actual sacrificial works in your life. That's what's going on here. That's why both of these belong in the New Testament. This is just one example of that. Again, this is I'm giving you a lot and I know we're going over time, but um, it's not a contradiction. What Abraham did didn't save him. He wasn't saved in Genesis 22, right? By by believing in then doing this work that he was going to be willing to sacrifice his son. No. He, he was saved. But what he did in 22 
showed that he was truly saved and truly trusting in God. Do you understand? That's a big difference. But that's one, just one little example of somebody might come along and say, but why does that book belong in this book? That's, there's not unity there. There's not consistency. There's a contradiction. It's not like that. It, the Holy Spirit, there's no contradictions with him. Now, we have to work through these things. And then some people aren't going to believe you. They're still going to say, but it says this, you know. And that's, that's okay, whatever. But here's the teaching. And you're going to have to wrestle with that teaching because he's not a God of contradictions. And that's one of the um, components, divine qualities, of these books in the New Testament. So, so you have all these things that we talked about last week and this week, that grid that everything goes through, these qualities that come out, but always through the guidance, the supervision, of the conviction of the Holy Spirit. And that's the trump card for us. And people are going to say, oh, yeah, you guys just go to the Holy Spirit. Blah, blah. You know, okay, we do. But it's not without good evidence. And that's what I want you guys to bring forth. That's our responsibility, to bring forth this kind of evidence and pray that the Holy Spirit convicts them. And it happens a lot. It happens, you know, uh, people try to set out to, to disprove the Bible. If you're a little bit older, you remember Josh McDowell. He was a skeptic. He wanted to kind of disprove the Bible, and then he ended up being converted. Um, Lee Strobel, same kind of thing. So the, so the Lord works it in that way, but we're called to bring forth that, that evidence with consistency well, we pray the Holy Spirit convicts and shows because he's the one who does it. But we don't want to just say, well, we have the Holy Spirit, so I don't have to answer you at all. No, we need to try to answer. That's what this class was about, hopefully to help you in that way. All these things together just give us great confidence that these are the very books that God intended us to have. God provided the books by his spirit. They were recognized and received by the body of Christ, and they bear the marks of canonicity. So that's why we have our 27 books. This was a Cliff Notes version of all this. Um, comments? Questions? Is this helpful a little bit? I hope it's helpful. Um, there's so much more, but this was a good... I don't want you to be caught off guard when people start saying these kinds of things. Bart Ehrman, college kids, people on campus, people at your job... And they start saying, you can't trust your Bible. Oh, yes, we can. And here's why. Father in heaven, we thank you and praise you. Thank you for this class, Lord. I'm just so thankful. Um, even, if, even if we're just scratching the surface, there's so much more. Um, what depth that, that would truly show us just how magnificent, how majestic, how true and how authentic your word is. It can't be mere coincidence. It's not, Lord. It's from you. It's not just something that's subjective. It's objective truth. We see it, Lord. We see it in these qualities, the unity, the consent of all the parts, the scope of the whole, which is to give glory to God. We see Christ in every book of the Bible, Lord. It's Christocentric. We understand, Lord God, that you preserve it by your spirit, Lord. We, we see the, the power and the efficacy of the millions and millions of lives that have been changed and transformed, completely turned around from the worst of the worst to those who today you will be with me in paradise. We see the power, Lord, of your, of your word and um, <clears throat> what it has, the effect it has on not only individuals, but communities and even nations as the gospel goes out and um, its presence is felt. So, we are thankful that we are we're called by you, Lord God. And I just pray that we would be um, equipped and willing 
to engage, especially a culture that has thrown the scriptures away, that has discounted them, Lord God, has gone their own way, and it's time that we bring the Bible back even into the even into the public square and and be bold in its proclamation and defending it as well. So we thank you and praise you. We pray that you would see us safely to our homes. We ask your blessing upon us and our families. In Jesus' name.